Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, we speak with André-Philippe Chennai, former Quebec chapter director of Canada-China Business Council and candidate for the St. Jean riding of the Green Party of Canada. We speak about the role of the Canada-China Business Council and his time running both the Shanghai and Quebec offices, China's leap in sophistication, and what he's seeing as the most important trends in the China business landscape. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Andre Philippe, thanks very much for joining the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you started as a marketing intern uh, with the CCBC and actually just left as the Quebec chapter director. So walk us through a little bit about the, the career transition throughout the organization. Well, yes, uh, and in the internship in 2012 is really where it all started. And I was hungry to learn and uh, how this organization works. I had notebooks over notebooks of a not-for-profit I could launch that would help Canadian companies do business in China. And when I found CCBC, I said, whoa, they've done it. It exists. And it was established in 1978, so I'm late. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Um, internship it was to learn the ropes and so when I was given an interview I translated their website and fulfilled their database so you know, I, I knew the pitch um, and I, I, I got the job in 2013 as Quebec chapter director I am a teacher uh, in history and world politics uh, from, from, from you know, my background so there was one good learning curve but I would say that I'm a quick study uh, and so the first three years were devolved, uh, given to uh, expanding our presence and footprints in Quebec. I was then given the opportunity to go to China for a year and a half, where I led our Shanghai chapter. And then uh, I came back to expand our presence in Eastern Canada, which was uh, and, and Quebec and Eastern Canada, which brought to us to launch a Atlantic chapter on May 29th of 2019, so very recently, uh, which is a you know our success the successful launch of the seventh office for this organization, which makes it truly coast to coast. If you don't mind my asking, what has been predicating mm-hmm. a lot of the expansion necessity recently? Well. It all dates back, I, I would point to uh, all of the spiel by the federal government and the Crown Corporations back in the 2007, 2008 uh, financial crisis, where mm. you may remember everyone was talking about diversifying your export basket, right? Go right. to new markets, stop. And this is really when you look at the trends, our export volumes to the U.S. are still very high, but their proportions are falling slightly every year to uh, the benefit of other countries, such as China being the second largest. Um, and so 
we really saw uh, a, a pickup in membership, but also I would say interactions with small and medium enterprises. And that's really when the game changes, right? 1980s, 1990s, in terms of expansion and internationalization into the Chinese market, not sourcing over there. Everybody's not been Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But being in China in the 90s and the, two, the early 2000s was big business, and, large, you know, large. And, and not just the big companies. Now it was a lot of exactly. new so type of customers for CCBC. Absolutely. From 2008 and 9 and on, it was small and medium enterprises. We recentered all of our core activities. I say we, but the organization right, recentered right. all of our core, its core activities toward SMEs. And so its, um, its portfolio of services now is uh, mostly catered to small and medium enterprises. Can you speak to the differences between handling um, or like if you need to help a large organization go to China, you know, how much of an impact you can have and how much you can value add to their, their going across the yeah. pond. Speak to the difference in the needs and the kind of the persona of, of the two companies and how you were able to be helpful to each different kind of subset. Well, not a good ball at all, Todd. Um, so it's easy <laughs> to differentiate. And by standard, these, the CCBC will declare to its membership that all members receive the same services based on their needs, right? Uh, because okay. they're not the same. And so, but our, our, our level of events, meetings, resources, uh, I say our, sorry, I'm still- The you know, CCBC, that, yeah. The CCBC can, can definitely, um, you know, has such a wide range where it really always depends on who is the, uh, the stakeholder we're talking to. Is it you know, business development or is it governmental relations? Is it marketing mm. or corporate affairs? And those type of stakeholder relations will define how, what kind of posture and opportunities will go and fetch into our bag to deliver to the member. So in terms of large companies, it's oftentimes the government relations, department, vice president, and so on, who sees value into the events that we pull, the, the organizations pull, and uh, the type of interactions we provide with both the Chinese and the federal government. So they'll connect. And so, you know, the membership at this point, even for small and medium enterprises or CCBC, people should see it as a token of gratitude because a $1,500 membership for, a, for an SME, given the value and, and, and what, you, the, you know, mm-hmm. what, what you receive through your membership is you know, it's worth tens of thousands, if not more, if you play your membership well. So for in China, if you get to meet a state councillor or a minister through one of our events and you're in charge of the governmental relations portfolio, that is worth your while, definitely. So big businesses will tend to use us sporadically on very surgical strike approach where yeah. they see something, they're going for it, and they're running with us. Then they'll pull back, and we won't hear them for with for the, from them for a few months. SMEs, strategy, execution, regulation, briefers, uh, and you know, training and conferences, making sure their executive team is aware of the whole context. Then you know, we see pre-market, market entry, post-market entry services being able to we're, we're able to deploy and be active. So our work with the SMEs is much, much closely knit, closer knit uh, than uh, what we would do with big businesses, which are more in a surgical strike approach. What was your experience like as the Shanghai chapter director? And specifically, you were both Shanghai chapter director and, and uh, Quebec chapter director. 
how did this, those roles, how did your day to day, how did just that whole experience um, differ? It changed quite a lot, but I would point to the fact that the biggest influence uh, my experience in Shanghai had is on my uh, future work or you know work forward to that as uh, when I came back to lead the Quebec chapter um, because having done the round in China and back in Canada, I could understand the needs of the entrepreneurs once they're in market in a much, much, much deeper fashion. Mm-hmm. And this comes from you know being on the ground as a CCBC director in China. When you come back to Canada, um, my eyes were pretty much open realizing, okay, not in China anymore. How do I provide similar or even better value to members not being in China? And so we quickly defined a strategy to position our chapter and our office as uh, the leader in um, data-driven business intelligence for our members, preparing briefers and strategic action plans and so on. Oftentimes, it's mostly arbitraging, our information arbitrage in between Chinese sources and 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 pro- providing that in French or in English, you know, uh-huh. uh, because most of that information is available in Chinese. Um, and so, being able to play as what we were to, to be a bridge. Uh, in regards to my experience in China, I would argue if some some of our listeners uh, are you know former or active expats in China. It, you know the usual the usual fast paced twenty four twenty four environment where I sent you an email thirty minutes ago did you see did you receive it uh, type of interactions uh, so it was it was really a demanding position and I raised my hat actually to everyone being a, being going to China and having the staying power on the corporate side and you know working over there once you once you live it you know how much of a grind that is and i fully respect people you know that have been doing this for many years it's a, it's an outstanding achievement just briefly what are some of the highlights overall from yeah. all your time with ccbc um that you guys uh, that you'd like to point to i can't hold back but to mention some <laughs> of the major events that we've pulled and you know those those have come before my time they will come in the future I'm a for as I said, I'm an historian. I'm a former history teacher, and the reason why I joined CCBC is that I could not uh, bear to sit on the sideline for my whole career commenting on history and politics and not having played an active role into it, um, and and especially for international relations. Um, and, and and given that uh, the uh, our 2016 AGM uh, under my leadership at when I was in Shanghai, where Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, um, was our guest of honor. He was just transitioning uh, from Shanghai to Hangzhou, where the G20 was held on that in that year. Right. And uh, we had Han Zhong, the secretary, then Secretary General to the city of Shanghai, and now Politburo Standing Committee member, um, as the counterpart. To, to to Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, that w- that day uh, took over over six weeks of our time to organize. It was a major pool for a team of three people, and I, I say three on the ground. Naturally, the whole team of, C- of CCBC came together uh, for event execution. But uh, you know, with four hundred and fifty people in the business forum, eight hundred 
at the banquet, which was nearly approved as a steak dinner, but you know, not enough. Um, large events like that really make the core of the bilateral relations. And that's why when we speak of CCBC, the AGM is uh, the single most important event uh, in the bilateral relations. And, and, and even this year, where I, I can tell you the CCBC AGM is set to be held in Shanghai on November 11 at the moment. And um, given the, the context of bilateral relations, it mm. is even more important than people, our member, Canadian and Chinese businesses and entrepreneurs value this event and show face to one another in order to, to, to create these people-to-people -people and business-to-business -business ties that we need for this relationship to keep moving forward. So speaking about the relationship sentiments between mm -hmm. uh, you know the Canadian companies and, and Chinese companies or even Canadian companies and, and Chinese consumers, what is the counterparts uh, sentiments towards each other? What is what is that what is that uh, temperature at where's that at right now? It's you know it's always China is always multi-scattered, right? Uh, and multi-sentimented? <laughs> multi-sentimented in a way because uh, yeah, I really like the saying where everything is true at any given moment in China. Yeah, uh, you could find anything. You know, just give me a story, and I'll find you tens of people that have already living this. Uh, so, but if you if we try and generalize, then it's it's important to mention. You know, always evaluate in terms of mapping and seg first, second, and third degree evaluation analysis. Who are you? talking to yes people to people but then business to business is more important in that way always have the second or third degree uh analysis on your relationships the chinese have that they do this a lot is not said in china but a lot is shown so it's important to understand that if you're dealing with a state-owned enterprise or if a canadian company is dealing with a state-owned enterprise i would say generally speaking their communication relationship is pretty cold at the moment and it's not because the, you know, the, the, the given individual is called to Canada, but the chain of command in China is everywhere, right? Yeah. If we're talking of a large corporation, probably the same. If we're talking of you know, a given entrepreneur slash investor coming into China and looking at your products, wanting to keep, he's probably warm on China and he himself is probably interested in the product. Now, be aware he himself may face issues at the customs, at the banks, and when he's making international transfers toward Canada. We saw, we see those things. I'll say CCBC sees these things uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, really, throughout its membership. I've recently had uh, Chinese entrepreneurs who are Canadian permanent residents, and uh, I would say historically, in my playbook, these guys were safe. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were, they were Chinese entrepreneurs being able to speak Chinese local languages and then, you know, skimming through. So they weren't really Canadians or a Canadian product and Canadian products were still appreci are still appreciated in China. So I was thinking to myself, these guys are protected. Not anymore. We've had Chinese permanent residents established in Canada that have been denied or canceled contracts, you know, multi-million dollars, business at risks now. So it's, it's, it's a difficult situation. No but kidding. The, the message to the Canadian entrepreneurs is 
It's not that the market is closed. It's still, there's still room. There's a huge opportunities. You must do your homework, do your mapping, do your strategic assessment, evaluate the stakeholders. Is it worthwhile? And if the, if the, if the answer is yes, given, given the information you have at hand, then, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, just do it, right? But you have to spend time evaluating your options in China now more than ever. Is the business climate, and I think you alluded to this, but is the business climate and the political climate, are they associated or disassociated in your opinion? No, they're completely associated. They're, they're, yeah, that's they're what deeply, I was... deeply tied. Yeah, deeply tied. a pretty obvious question, but I just but, wanted to make sure... Go let ahead. me give you let me give you an example here where uh, a, a, a uh, one of the leading uh, manufacturers of electric motors in in, in Canada uh, used to be one of our members. They were bought by a, an American company uh, in, the, in the last year, and uh, when they signed their joint venture in China, uh, for about two years, their Chinese partner who was in charge of sales and marketing. It felt like he wasn't coming through. This is one of the largest Chinese companies in that field. Really a great cooperative and a complementary relationship there. But he wasn't delivering on the playbook. And these guys were burning cash and you know, having the, 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 the plant and the employees producing, but not distributing. The product was not moving. That was 2011, 2012. Xi Jinping was just coming to power. It took 18 months after his, his, his nomination, I guess, or election, or mm. being uh, when he became president, yep. for the approval to go from his office down to the procurement at the municipal level for these guys to say, yes, we will buy. It took 18 months of frozen market in transitional power for those state-owned enterprises and those local governments to start buying again. For things to thaw. Yeah, exactly. But for, for as well, because, you know, people had not received the orders yet, the order to move, I should say. Um, and, and that's the same thing for large companies. We often see in China where if you're trying to meet with a Chinese company, their leaders to sign a contract or negotiate, um, and you're not careful and overlay the political agenda or you know, calendar over your own business calendar, and you end up in China, let's say two weeks before the Yanghui, where the uh, where the two meetings in Beijing in early March. If you're in China and you're trying to meet leaders of big companies or SOEs or the, uh, governmental leaders two weeks before the Yanghui, you will not get a meeting with them. They're, they don't want to stick their head out, and or and or they're in Beijing, um, give, being given briefings. So you know, political agenda, business agenda. Yeah. Well, and I think when you talked about, you know, I, I, I brought the word thaw, but, you know, to for that, that kind of Plinko effect of, yeah. of the uh, Xi Jinping kind of coming yeah. into power and then finally 18 months later. And then you, you'd mentioned about do your homework, right? Do yeah. your research. Understand. I think that's probably the one of the more important things that you want to look at is what is, is, is the landscape frozen? where I want to go or is it actually thought um, is it a, is it a good time to go and to look for that which is not easy by the way because we all know doing research on China can be can be difficult one last question just based on that do yeah. in your experience and this is again a little bit off script in your experience 
are we, given that the USA is still our number one trading partner and our proximity and shared border and all the rest of us, do you find that in their view, in the in the Chinese view, either business, consumer, political or otherwise, are we uh, often lumped in uh, with the U.S. as um, kind of the same uh, or do they uh, are they able to clearly differentiate between the two? Uh who exactly are we talking about here? China as a whole, consumers, leaders. Well, that's what I mean. If if there is a difference, um, like well, let's talk business to business, like B two B or B two C. You know, if it's a Canadian product versus an American product, um, are we clearly separated in their minds um, as our own entity? Yeah, in terms of products, yeah. we are clearly separated. Perfect, that's for sure. That's great. Um, yeah. we, listen, if if our listeners want to get a good glimpse into that, there are many studies into this, but. Uh, the Canada China Business Council publishes every two years a business survey, which is CC, the Canada China Business Council biannual business survey. If you Google that, you'll find it. It's a, it's a 60 page report, but there's a natural negative briefing that is very meaningful. And over the 250 ish companies that have completed, the Canadian companies that have completed the, the last questionnaire, the last survey, um, they still, even throughout, because that was published in March, so even through the, the, the hardship context, uh, most Canadian companies involved in China still value very much their Canadianness and play it as a card in their branding in China. It's important to do so because the consumer and the leaders are not the same, right? The China, in, in their mind, for the Chinese in Canada, the air is still fresh, the sky is still blue, and that's important. Let's quickly look back and then look forward. So how did China as a, as a business environment, um, how has it evolved, you know, since the early days of your time in China till now? Um, in one word, sophistication. And that's something that I've been um, vying to uh, bring as an awareness to the business community over my time at CCBC is that mm. China is a highly sophisticated market in terms of consumer behaviors and uh, business dealings, uh, expectations of in terms of delivery quality as well. If they're buying international, they want and they expect that quality. If not, they'll just buy it Chinese and cheap. Yeah. So, uh, but I've seen this level of sophistication rise from uh, you know, from my early days looking at China up throughout through CCBC and up to now, and it's it's a deep and heavy trend that is set to continue. And sophistication, not in the sense of your French Paris sophistication, in the sense of your <laughs> Shanghai China sophistication. Chinese are sophisticated in their own way, and so as a company, you need to adapt to that level of sophistication. So when we speak of adapting your brand to China. That's what we talk about, but it's not just doing that translation. It's speaking that sophisticated language that consumers and businesses expect to see in their own field. Um, and, and so that evolving, uh, that evolution of mindsets is really uh, interesting to see uh, unfold really and, and to, you know, to, to, to ponder where is it going in the end. Right. Because the companies that are able to and read the tea leaves and see. So that sophistication process for the Chinese consumers in my own sub-market is going to end up in 15, 20 years there. Well, if you're able to do that, you have a winning number. 
Right. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a good clarification. But <laughs> funny that you would mention the breathing. You know, it's not. They're not doing high tea, wearing corsets, and you know, um, having Earl Grey and crumpets at four p.m. Um, you mean that there's a transactional sophistication? Oh, absolutely. And there's a there's a consumer uh, consumption sophistication as well, right? The I mean, I mean, the WPIC has all those data, like the number of hours they will chat or look at a given products before they hit buy is uh, substantial. And then they'll want to have their friends corroborate that it's right. a good international company, it's quality because it's lifestyle in the end, right? It's, it's who you are as a person in China being defined by what you buy. So you, they, they, it's, a, it's a very important to understand and be able to play that game if yeah. you want to get yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we've talked on a, on a couple of previous episodes, and I'm sure we're going to talk more. But just like the whole um, influencer marketing uh, rise, you know, in in China, uh, the way that people are now searching through their WeChat uh, for instances or references to particular products to get a sentiment from within their network uh, versus buying what Baidu was telling them when they search, and the fact that uh, you know the wall gardens of of, of e commerce in China where. Um, you know, Alibaba blocks um, purchases from search results on Baidu from associating with Baidu because they don't want to pay Baidu. So you have to mm-hmm. leave the Baidu environment and then go into the Taobao, Tmall, mm-hmm. other environments and do the purchase and cuts them out, which is vastly different than the way e-commerce works in the in North America. Oh, yeah. So um, it, it is... Um, it is it is very different, and you have to understand these things when you go there. Okay, quickly looking forward, um, any uh, predictions um, on some trends or things that are going to change in the next five years that we should be aware of? Uh, it's let me speak to the B two B aspect of things here, um, and and it, it's not being promoted nearly as it was by the Chinese central government because of international now uh, with yeah pressure really, but. Uh, the Made in China 2025 and the rise in domestic components in the Chinese manufacturing supply chain is of utmost importance for any manufacturing slash technology company wanting to be involved with Chinese partners. The Chinese expects you to be in market. They expect you to localize, especially if you do technology. The supply chain, and we see it, right? This is the whole contour of the Canada, the U.S.-China trade uh, war and trade uh, negotiations. But the Chinese are very serious into upgrading their own and uh, strengthening their own supply chain. If you want to integrate into that and you don't have board-level commitment in at investing and having operations, be it R&D, be it a few engineers, be it a given project that you'll develop in a given laboratory or, you know, it could be a co-working space, but you know, R&D research boots on the ground. That's how you will integrate into the supply chain. Um, and I would say in terms of potential value added or, you know, revenue growth for technology, software, companies that want, into, uh, that want to benefit from the Chinese market, you need to go there and you need to understand how to play the regulatory cards in your favor. That is look at made in China 2025 and then break it down to a local level. The provincial or municipal governments must have regulations in regards to upgrading their supply chains, which speak the same language and use those cards as blueprints in your meetings with officials and business partners, because that is the language they speak. And if you can speak their same language as them, you will get the doors open. 
for you. Andre Philippe, I really, really appreciate your time, and I have one more question for you. Yep. Give our listeners your number one piece of advice about doing business in China. That will, that must be register your brand. You are a tech, you are a consumer brand, consumer product, you are a fashion and apparel, or you're even a software company. You're thinking of going to China in one, three, five, ten years. Make the commitment to register your brand yesterday. Do it now. Uh, it's a little cost that is going to go into your legal advisory, legal uh, services budget line, and but you must own your brand. China is a first. First come, first serve, first to file IP brand um, uh, like system. Uh, if if someone else is see your website and uh, or your brand and thinks, hey, this is interesting, chances are they're going to come to China. Let me see, and that's very easy. Look if your brand is registered, their brand is registered or not in China, and if it's not, they can for uh, like a hundred dollar uh, roughly own your brand. And that will cost you a quarter million to own it back, and it's not scaremongering. We see it every every single you know every other day. Yeah. Like, uh, the Canadian company reaches out to us. A, we're being asked thirty thousand, a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollars to own, win back our brand. What do we do? And oftentimes, the answer is, sorry, you got to pay. Yeah, you got to so, do it. Um, so, or or change your brand, right? Revamp. So register your IP and then get board level commitment at long-term investment in China. It's not a one-off. It's not a six months. Uh, do your homework, but get board level commitments. If people are not committed to Chinese market, <laughs> keep doing your homework. Keep convincing. Thank you, my friend. Very, very much appreciate uh, all your sage advice. This was brilliant. Can't thank brilliant. you enough. And we do have to do this again sometime soon. I'm always open. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.